Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. I am the executive editor of the Express News Group. Uh, we publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website's 27east.com and sagharborexpress.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton, who is the managing editor of the Express News Group. Hey, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And of course, this is where we bring together uh, award-winning journalists from the East End for a deeper dive. This week, Beth Young, uh, editor of the East End Beacon. Good morning, Beth. Good morning, Jeff. And uh, Denise Civiletti, who's the editor of the East End Beacon. Good morning, Denise. She's the editor of Riverhead Local. Riverhead Local. Oh, what did I say? What did I say? Have some more coffee. Uh, You know, the first one of 2022, and I've screwed it up. Yeah, I have enough trouble as it is, but good morning. Thank Denise you. Civiletti, editor of Riverhead Local. That's what I meant to say, yes. So happy 22 to everybody. And uh, on Friday, we awoke to a winter storm that reminded us that winter still exists on the East End. It just came a little bit later than usual this year. Uh, so we thought we'd talk we, today about the coming year, 2022, and uh what we have, might expect, what the big headlines might be in the coming year. And, and guys, I think probably it's safe to say that a lot of the same headlines that are headlines today are going to be headlines into 2022. Uh, the big issues are the big issues. But one of the things that's going to be a little different this year is we are going to enter a very active political season uh, in a lot of ways. But I think the way it most directly affects us is you're going to have a race for governor this year that's going to be more active than it was in 2021, although it got underway. And uh, that is going to impact the race in the first district of the U.S. House of Representatives on the East End that uh, Lee Zeldin is running for the Republican nomination for governor. And so that seat's open and available. Denise, what what do we expect this year? I mean, Lee Zeldin is not the Republican nominee for governor. But it's sort of starting to feel that way because nobody's really stepped forward uh, to challenge him. And he's sort of uh, acting as the presumptive Republican nominee. Uh, what do you think will happen there? Do you think he's going to he's going to just uh, roll into the nomination? I, I don't I don't really know. I mean, Rob Astorino is technically still in the um, in the race for the Republican nomination. Um, but as um, Mr. Zeldin reminds everyone with. Uh, Every email he sends out, he's the presumptive nominee, he says, for the Republican Party. I guess the state chairman and uh, the vast majority of the Republican committee chairs across the state have endorsed him. Um, If Astorino and I guess uh, Andrew Giuliani is still in the race, did he drop out? I don't know. What is is Giuliani's uh, situation? I'm not even sure. He had certainly flirted with running. I think he may have said he wasn't going to, but uh, I still feel like he's lurking out there. I think he, I mean, last I heard he was in the race. I, I honestly don't really know, but um, I, you know, I, I feel like what kind of a chance does he possibly have? I I can't, I, I don't know. Um, Astorino, you know, he's a former, former, right. County executive, uh, Westchester County. And um, you know, he has, a, he's got some cred, a street cred, like as a, an elected official. Um, but, you know, clearly Zeldin's the front runner in this race, I think. I mean, I, I think that's pretty clear. Uh, I, I think I just got the first uh, email from Astorino's campaign uh, in response to the governor's, um, you know, state of the state. But, um, you know, Zeldin sends out multiple um, uh, emails every, every day um, from his campaign, plus emails from his, uh, his you know, congressional office most of which are all, you know, just criticizing, um, and that's putting it mildly, the, the incumbent governor, Kathy Hochul. Um, and, and, um, and he is the presumptive nominee, right? He seems to be the party's choice. Yeah, well, um, party there leadership. May, there, may anyway. pri- there may be a primary, but it seems like yeah. like the GOP is behind him at this it point. It seems that way, as well as the conservative party, too, um, which, you know, is a factor in some places, I guess. I don't know. I mean... There's no way that Hopeful is going to get the Conservative Party nomination anyway. But um, so, you know, I think it's, you know, it's going to be uh, an interesting ride this year for us with, um, you know, our congressman running for governor. It To some extent, it's already been. And, um, you know, 
he's he's very outspoken. He's very high profile. Um, he's on television a lot, as we you know we've spoken about in the past. Um, and um, he's running really hard. Beth, you know, there's a there's a history here in New York State. The the Republicans have a difficult time overcoming the the, the Democratic domination in the cities, and that's a lot of votes that you have to overcome. And uh, the last one to do it was George Pataki, who was really sort of a moderate Republican, whereas Lee Zeldin is very much not a moderate Republican. He's he's very, very far to the right. Um, do you think he has a chance of winning a, the, the state race, considering his positions? And we're having this conversation the week of January 6th, which is, you know, he played a key role in. It's He's got a lot of right-wing baggage that he would have to overcome in a, in a state that's very blue. And he doesn't seem to think that it is baggage. Um, one of the things that, I, that I've been noticing with him in particular is um, this shift toward this focus on families first, which I guess we're seeing in a lot of places. That was a big factor in Virginia. Um, uh, parents of all political stripes are really fed up with what's going on with education. And um, that's something that hits them at their table at home every day. So, I mean, this under normal circumstances, I would say, like, it's kind of crazy for him to consider that that he might have a chance in New York State. But we are not living in normal times right now. And I I think he knows what he's doing. I think he believes he can win. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more in the, in the upcoming months, him really focusing on um, the state wants too much control over your children's life in school. And that's going to really resonate with a lot of and people. He's been, and he's been very critical of, of the new New York City mayor for for a lot of those things. COVID is the yeah. dark horse in this in this race, right? I mean, we all thought we would be done with it by now, but but just for those for those factors, you know, kids wearing masks in schools, and you, you saw the you know the the um, Nassau County executive the other day come out and and with this executive order that schools in Nassau County don't have to follow state guidelines on. On, on masks in schools. And so you, you've got that, that crowd. And, and I don't know that they're all conservative Republicans that, you know, that, that are against those, um, you know, mask mandates and vaccine mandates and, and all that stuff. And that's certainly going to come to play in, in the governor's race. If, if there's a, a vaccine mandate for children ahead of us, I think that's going to ha- be a big factor um, in the governor's race. I think that, you know, Turnout, turnout, turnout is is a really important. Like getting the base to to turn out for either side is going to be critical. Um, and I think that um, you know there's a movement in our country right now that I think you know affects even a state as blue as New York. Um, right. And uh, you know, I mean, Zeldin keeps talking about the red, you know, the red wave and. Um, you know, turning New York red next year. Uh, I mean, you know, don't forget we have uh, a, a lot of state races, you know, a lot of state races as well this year. It's, it's um, the midterms and that's going to yeah. activate yeah. the bases on both sides. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, but I'm very curious as to whether it seems to me that the calculus is that a Republican really has to win some Democratic votes to even even theoretically be in the race at the state sure. level. And I yeah. just cannot see Zeldin winning a lot of Democratic votes. I mean, uh, he's a very polarizing figure, Beth. Yeah. Well, you know, what Denise was saying about the vaccine mandates, I mean, if, if something were to come down prior to the 2022-23 school year, that's right before the election. And, you know, if that were to happen, theoretically, you know, he could ride that wave right into November. Really um, interesting. That's a really good point. Well, and as you said, and, and as you said, Joe, it, it's it's a midterm election, so it's it's a very there's going to be very you know national drives both both ways, yeah. um, and there's a lot of criticism um, you know about the the, Demo- the Democratic administration, Joe Biden, that you know on on the economy, and you know he didn't cure COVID, and you know and 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 all these things, and and that's certainly going to. Um, um, you know, whip up uh, the the you know the Republican conservative votes and and get those people out to vote and and maybe you do see some swing um, from traditional Democrat. I think voters. also. Oh, oh, sorry. 
I, I think uh, also the, the former governor is, plays a role in this race. Yeah. I think there's, you know, an anti, there's a anti Cuomo backlash in this state that, yeah. um, you know, Zeldin's uh, literature is constantly linking, uh, you know, the former governor's lieutenant governor <laughs> with, uh, with the former governor, that being Kathy Hochul. Um, and then I don't know whether or not there's going to be any um, meaningful primary fight for the nomination. Um, but, you know, I mean, Kathy Hochul named a New York City guy for, you know, as, as lieutenant governor, but she's uh, still a Western New York, um, you know, person and um, a pretty moderate Democrat, I think. Um, as well. So I don't know. There's just a lot of factors. It's going to, we're going to see like how this shapes up, I think pretty quickly in the next couple of months. Let's real briefly talk about the the fallout in the first district, uh, because that leaves that seat wide open now. And uh, we've had some candidates announced. There hasn't been a whole lot of activity on the Republican side early, but we've got a couple of candidates who have announced since then. Um, But I think one of the more fascinating parts of this is the redistricting process that's under undergoing right, right now? The state's doing, and really having a difficult time coming up with <laughs> with a with a new first district border, and it will make a big difference because uh, it's either going to be more strongly Democratic or more strongly Republican, depending on where they draw the line. And certainly, because the state legislature in Albany is going to be the final word on this. And and the state, you know, Albany is right now owned by the Democrats. Uh, it's likely that you may see the, the seat be drawn so that I, I think the numbers I saw in the story we had this week, uh, the Democratic uh, proposal, as it stands, the Republicans have about a 10 point uh, margin in the first district. The new line would only be two points. So it would essentially be a toss up district. Uh, even more so than it's been. And you got to remember, this was a district that already swung back and forth over the last couple of decades. Um, so I think that's all part of the process. But um, Bridget Fleming has certainly stepped forward as one of the candidates. Who, who else is out in the field right now um, in the first district? Kara Hahn. Yeah, is, and, and those two have gone at each other um, in the past, right? Yeah, strongly. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, it sounds. I, I wonder which, if- which is which is always a little frustrating. And look, I think they're both great candidates, and I would vote for for either one of them. But it, it's like at some point you, you want to see the Democrats kind of be able to pull together and put forward one strong candidate rather than um, you know um, get rid of all their powder on uh, you know on these primary races that you know they spend millions of dollars on on the primary to see who's going to run. Um, and by the time the actual race comes around, I mean, all, all that money is depleted and it, it's just it, it becomes difficult. I think the Republicans, to some extent, are better, do a better job of that in, in selecting a candidate and, and getting behind the candidate. And you don't see these, um, you know, these huge um, primaries. That being said, it's, so it's, Anthony Figliola. Right. Well, Anthony Anthony Figliola, the fig, as I guess he's called, he's a Republican from I think it's Wading River, um, announced his candidacy for the first district this week. I don't know how serious a candidate he is. He put out a, you know, a press release and all that. And and looking at the press release, I noticed that there was no comment or support from, um, you know, from the GOP. So I don't know if if the party is ready to um, to announce a candidate or get behind a candidate. And it still makes me, you know, question the whole, you know, is, is Lee Zeldin, you know, I mean, it, it's, it seems obvious that he's running for governor, but if something happens and he wanted to step back into that race, it seems like they're leaving that lane open for him until the last minute, which is yeah. um, a little confusing. You think they would want to get out there and start, um, you know, making waves and, and drum up uh, those votes. What's the timing for that now? With in terms of a primary, like when when does he when does Zeldin have to make that final decision? Do you know anybody off the top? That's of your actually head? been come, it comes down to the the petitions and when they have to file the petitions and once he files the petitions, then you know then I think he's locked into run one race. Primaries were always September, but I don't know if if that changed with with COVID or. Um, 
Yeah. Cole, Cole wanted Paul, to Cole's weighing in. Cole on, wanted I mean, to get like, in on the. the I'm not sure uh, of the dates, but it's you know it's like summer, summer or, or early fall, right? It's it's not that long so, before the election. I mean, moved to June. New York State is it different than New York State State's rules now? Because I mean, they remember they pushed everything up to make yeah, the did. primaries it's, coincide. I think it's like, June, I, you know, yeah. The, yeah, I yeah, think I it's think, June. Yeah, the yeah. primaries are in June. And and, and so we've talked about this, uh, about whether, as Bill said, it, it almost felt like the, the Republican Party was keeping the first district nomination open in case Lee Zeldin stumbled mm-hmm. and, and uh, his governor run uh, came up short and he might be able to change his mind and come back and run for that seat. But that doesn't seem to be the case. I now. don't see that happening that, so oh. far at all. Um, yeah. I have to say also that, I mean, we've seen all kinds of, we've heard all kinds of horror stories about redistricting around the country and gerrymandering to, you know, um, eliminate voting rights for people of color and things along those lines in, in states that are Republican controlled. But um, I was very uh, dis, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but uh, kind of outraged, I think was the word we used in an editorial last week by what the Suffolk County Democrats have tried to pull. I, I seriously, you know, on the count with the county redistricting, I did not hear a compelling argument from any of them, including in interviews on and off the record about like how, what they, what they did could explain, possibly be, be cast as legal. Like, I, you know, explain um, that Denise, cause we're talking about something slightly different from the first district. Uh, redistricting. Yeah. Uh, but except for that, the two, two uh, probably leading candidates for the democratic nod in the first district are both members of that County legislature, democratic members of that legislature. That just kind of blew my mind. I mean, so um, there was some kind of a game being played with um, naming members to the reapportionment commission that's required by the county charter within 90 days, I think it was, of uh, the release of the census data. Uh, so they w- each party would have had to name four people to this reapportionment commission by it worked out to be this year because things were late, November like 10th. and. Uh, neither side did that. Um, and then, um, the presiding, the democratic presiding officer. And again, the backdrop is that, you know, on November 2nd or 3rd, whatever the actual election day was this year or last year, uh, that the Democrats lost control of this County legislature. And, um, so, you know, right after that date passed, uh, the demo, the Democratic uh, Caucus pulled this, you know, reapportionment plan out of its hip pocket, and that was, you know, already prepared. And the Democratic uh, presiding officer, outgoing presiding officer, who lost his election, um, so he lost his seat as well as, you know, his leadership post. Um, he introduced this plan as the local law to adopt the redistricting plan in Suffolk County, and. Um, you that know, would that would obviously that favored the Democrats. The outgoing, obviously, I mean, in, in a big party. way. I mean, it, you know, what it did was it took four different districts on the western part in the western end of the county and consolidated uh, two of them to it, it consolidated them into two districts. Basically, they created two empty seats, two open seats, and they put two rep- sitting Republican legislators in the same district in two different districts. So they would have to, if they want to stay in, they'd have to have a primary. Um, the, the minority leader, who's now the presiding officer, um, Kevin McCaffrey, uh, had, uh, he, he filed his, he submitted his nominees right away then. And then, you know, the, the Democrats started moving forward with adopting this plan. And it, it's just in complete violation of the procedures in the county charter. I mean, the county charter spells it all out. Unfortunately, it doesn't say what happens if no, if there's no commission appointed. So that left this like kind of like you know loophole, I guess, is how it might have been viewed. And uh, so you know, the Republicans sued. They got to stay. The Democrats appealed it. They, then the Repu- you know they got they they got the stay set aside. And then the Republicans you know sued again and. They got a 14-page decision from a state Supreme Court judge in Riverhead that said, ah, this is completely illegal, and here's all the reasons why you can't do this. Stop. The Democrats again got an appellate division judge to um, 
you know, set set put a stay on that order. And then the Democrats on the last day of the year, the last day they had the majority, had a special meeting to adopt this plan, which they did on a straight party line vote. Um, you know, county government offices weren't even open that day. <laughs> and it was just really like a, a the Republican lawyer in there in his brief called it, you know, a naked power grab. And I honestly, I don't see any other way to look at this. And I was very disenchanted by this attempt. I mean, I understand, but, you know, the Republicans were yelling that, you know, you lost this election in a big way. And now you're trying to undo that. And they yeah. were, you know, consolidating like, you know, they were trying to rob Trotta against somebody, uh, a newly elected uh, guy. And it just, I don't know, it was just stinky. <laughs> It's, it's a it's a stark reminder, isn't it, that that so many elections are won and lost long before ballots are cast. Yeah. This process of drawing lines is significant, and it's going to have an effect on on all of these races in twenty twenty. And then, of course, you know, the state redistricting commission couldn't come to an agreement. So there's like right. a, a Democratic plan and a Republican plan that's been sent to the state legislature and. You know, as you pointed out, Joe, you know, it's, it's Albany is controlled by Democrats right now. And so I guess we can we see where that's going. But um, it's the first know. first important story of 2022, I think, is how all, yeah. all of the lines uh, yeah. end up being drawn. I think it's going to I wouldn't be surprised if, if the state legislature early, um, early this week just adopts the Democratic map. And I think yeah. that was probably yeah. looming over over the process the whole time. And everybody knew that was the likely outcome. And uh, I sure. probably affected the back and forth a little bit. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM, uh, our first show of 2022. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. With us today is Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local and Beth Young of East End, the East End Beacon. Uh, so, COVID is going to be with us into 2022, and obviously, uh, we're hitting a peak of sorts um, right now, but there is some optimism. Can we talk about that? That I think there's there's <laughs> at <do> least <laughs> some thinking that, that we may be in the middle of the severe spike that we're going to get from Omicron that we always knew was coming and this is it. And, and, you know, we're over well over 20% in Suffolk County testing positive, but that we may see this ease up, um, you know, in the next couple of weeks even. And, and from what I've seen from epidemiologists who've talked about this, it's not outrageous to think that we may see a quick drop off, just like we saw a quick run up. Uh, is the reason for optimism, Beth? Are you, do you, you know, do, are are you personally feeling optimistic about the situation? I'm personally very optimistic, and um, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not an epidemiologist, but um, uh, numerous people in my close circle have gotten COVID in the last two weeks, and they've all they've all handled it very well. And um, from what I've heard from people on the ambulance as well, you know, we're not transporting nearly as many people to the hospital. Um, which is really huge. Um, I know the hospital uh, percent occupancy has kind of really swung up in the last couple of days. We really need to look at that, but I think it's going to happen quickly. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if this continues to metamorphosize into something like the common cold. Uh, it's obviously very contagious, but um, it doesn't seem to be as deadly. But people are still dying every day in Suffolk. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's still a risk. And the fatality yeah. the numbers are going up uh, yeah. in Suffolk. I mean, the interesting thing is that um, the hospitalizations in Suffolk County on Long Island and in the region and New York City and New York State are pretty significantly, especially as you get, you know, statewide, higher than last winter's peak. You know, I mean, nothing like they were in last spring and then spring of 2020. I mean. Um, but the, the winter peak in January of last year, uh, it's, it's exceeding that by a substantial margin at this point. You know, what's um, interesting though, Denise, we had a story this week from, from Michael Wright, who talked to, uh, folks at both hospitals, Peconic Bay and Riverhead and Southampton, uh, Stony Brook, Southampton hospital. And, uh, the point was made by both of those hospital executives that those cases in the COVID unit also include people who were in the hospital for other procedures, 
and tested positive for COVID. And so they they were moved into the COVID ward for that reason, but may not have even been symptomatic from COVID. So these numbers that we're seeing now are a lot more complicated than they were in, in earlier uh, elements. You know, when we had to deal with with the different variants in Delta, certainly, which was when you caught Delta, your risk of going to the hospital was was more significant. Um, these numbers are a little different, and they can be parsed in a lot of different ways. And, um, Did either of them provide like solid numbers on that? I'm curious. Like, you know, how, they like did. How many yeah. And, and uh, Bill, do you, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I remember that the numbers were higher than they were last winter, but not as high as the peak in the spring of uh, when, when the, the, you know, the first. Nowhere near. Nowhere no, near. Not, yeah, nothing was as bad as that. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, spring of 2020. I, I'd be um, real curious like to know, like, how much that was true in last winter's peak, too, like that people were testing positive after they were in the hospital, because that. I mean, there were plenty of asymptomatic infections at that point as well. Um, the other day, the governor said that um, this, the hospitals were going to be required. She was going to start requiring the hospitals to report that because she wanted to know exactly that data, which I think makes a lot of good sense because this could be, you know, just sort of misleading. There's all these people in the hospital with COVID. Well, you know, you know, half of them didn't go into the hospital for COVID. And Beth, yeah. you you mentioned that you yeah. you know people um, who have had it and got through it okay, and that's I, I I as well know people, and I think the difference is most of them were vaccinated, mm. and that really really does make a difference in this case. It it you know in, and I feel like that can't be overstated that that what may be helping Suffolk County, uh, we see numbers soaring as far as the number of people who are testing positive. But the hospitalization rates and the deaths are staying manageable. I mean, of course, they're going to go up with more cases, but they're not soaring at nearly the same kind of pace. And I think, Beth, that that is uh, that is the result of the high vaccination rates that we see yeah, in the county. That's absolutely true. And and a number of the people I know were boosted as well. So, but they they did not get very sick. So. Yeah, I, I, looking at at, uh, at the story that Mike wrote, and I think there was a, a very uh, a great and telling uh, comment from Amy Loeb, who's the executive director of Peconic Bay Medical Center, and she said that um, I'll read the quote: "We on Long Island, in particular, have become very adept at managing this type of surge. We're about where we were last year, but fortunately, the patients we have now look a good bit different. They have less acute illness, and there are fewer in the ICU." Thank goodness for vaccinations. And I think the vaccinations, as you said, Joe, are, are I mean, that's that's really important. Not not to be the, um, <clears throat> you know, not to be the dark cloud here, though, but, you know, you, I, I don't, we've got a, a 20% positivity rate, and I don't know that that includes the home testing. And, and it seems like there's this huge push right now um, that everybody should do the home testing. The schools are t- passing out home testing, drugstores are sold out of home testing, um, you know, and, and so if somebody has one of those, you know, home test kits and they test positive, what are they doing at that point? You're supposed to report it, I guess. I don't know that people are. I, I think it's just a matter of knowing, yes, I have, you know, I have COVID, so I'm going to stay home for, you know, I guess it's five days now instead of 10 days if you're an essential worker or, or whatever. And because the illness isn't that Great, which is a, which is a good thing, obviously. Um, but there are a lot more people, perhaps, that have COVID than than even that twenty percent that's being reported. And I think that's that's a scary thing. Um, and that it, being countered by the fact, though, that because of vaccinations, people aren't getting as sick. So, so it's becoming more. Can I say normal? I'm doing air quotes. Um, <laughs> you know, can I say it's becoming more normalized? That's um, the new you know, normal air quotes. Or, or that may be uh, where yeah. we end up with this, though, is that right. it becomes it's manageable. Well, hopefully. Yeah, it's, yeah. Ma- it's more manageable now. Yeah. The Did rapid you... tests are not that uh, reliable either. I mean, you have the FDA put a statement out last week or this week, I forget, saying that, you know, they're not really very reliable at detecting Omicron. Mm, so right. that's another factor. Like if you have a negative home test, uh, that doesn't, and I personally know a number of people that had a negative home test and then a positive PCR when they went to get a test. Um, yeah. 
So it's I mean, really... that's a factor as well in the numbers. Like, I, you know, I don't think the numbers that they're reporting as incredible as they are some days really are anything but a fraction of the actual, you know, infections out there, which as you point out is, you know, potentially a good thing because Omicron also is not infecting the lower respiratory tract the way the other variants were. And having a, having an infection will give you some uh, immunity moving immunity. forward. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope so. I think the home tests are really most effective as like a widespread screening tool if they were wide, if they were available in a widespread way. Right. I mean not be not if you're if you're really sick you should yeah. get a a better test but if you just want to you know have everybody in a school take one before they come to school in the morning they, if there were enough of them that right. would be a good use for them. I have That's to say if the schools been, if you've been exposed if you've been exposed and you're nervous about it and all that then it's a good yeah. reassurance to go into work or to go wherever you're going. I don't know if it's true or not. I I read that um, that those home tests aren't very effective if you're not showing symptoms. Um, and 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 again, I, I read it in one one place, so I don't know how accurate that is. But I you know I worry about a bunch of people without symptoms taking this test and feeling like they can, you know, we had go four, run around and do what they. We had four people who were going to come over here for Christmas, and they all took home tests, and half of them came back positive. Before Christmas, wow. so yeah. so it was like fifty percent. It was like okay, they we're not going. Were they in. showing symptoms? No. Were they showing symptoms or not? No. So no. about so that. so that dispels maybe that dispels the myth. That well, I just, it's one case. Um, <laughs> but I have to say, the schools have done a, yeah. the schools have done a nice job too of getting tests out um, at least on the South Fork. Uh, to yeah. parents and students. And I think that's been a, an element of the response lately. Denise, we were talking um, earlier uh, offline about the impact of all this on government. And we're starting now to see um, some of the governments going back to virtual meetings again. Uh, Sag Harbor uh, Village Mayor Jim LaRocca announced this week that they were going back to uh, virtual meetings for the time being, just in, as a matter of safety. Um, but as you point out, and we've learned this in the past year and a half, two years, when it was necessary to have the virtual meetings, that has a big impact on the public's ability to sort of keep tabs on government and, and our ability to report on what's happening. Can you talk about what some of the challenges are for us when, when you're dealing with virtual meetings versus in-person meetings? Well, I mean, sure. I we we have um, no ability to really just like you know walk over to the decision makers at the end of a meeting and ask questions to follow up on what was just decided. I mean, um, and and that's a problem because then you have to start like chasing people with on, with telephone calls and emails and texts and you know how that goes. Um, so I mean, that's a problem. It's um, it's a problem when the uh, video conference portion of, or the video conference capability is not provided for all the boards and committees in a town. Uh, you know, Riverhead right now, they're doing that for um, the town board and the t with, with its work sessions as well. But, um, you know, not necessarily. Uh, we were told that it was going to be up to the planning board and the zoning board to do those things. And the planning board had a meeting last night and, uh, they had Zoom just for the public hearing so that people could participate because that's a big factor is, you know, in a public hearing, um, you know, how, you, you can watch it live stream on the website, but that doesn't give you the ability to, you know, voice an opinion about something or testify, um, at, which is necessary for, you know, a participatory government, I would think. Um, so there are obstacles to doing that, personnel obstacles, financial obstacles, um, but, um, you know, it has a real impact on residents. Uh, also, like, not, it's been inconsistent here anyway with, like, how much information is provided before a meeting. Um, you know, the town board, this uh, town supervisor has been very good about having all of the documents that are going to be discussed at a meeting put online so that when you're following along online, you can see what they're talking about. Um, and, um, you know, that's been a good thing for the press and, and the public, but, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily carry through with the other, other boards. And there are some boards that, you know, do some, make some important decisions that really impact people. 
And I'm speaking as someone who lives next door to something that really impacts where we live, um, where there was absolutely no notice because it was a committee, a, a farm preservation committee that makes decisions in Riverhead about site plans and things on preserved land. And, um, you know, they they don't put up their agendas before the meeting. Mm. Um, the, the meetings are not streamed. Um, and that's true of the Architectural Review Board, the Landmarks Preservation Commission, the uh, uh, Conservation Advisory Council in Riverhead. And it's like these are boards that, you know, some of them may ha- may not have final decisions, but um, a lot of things happen at these boards where, um, you know, they have an impact on what what the ultimate decision is before the town board or the planning board, and mm. um, to There's at least a know benefit to having what's people yeah. to having people I mean, there yeah. and observing the yeah. process. Um, and, Beth Southold Town learned another downside to uh, having your public meetings on uh, the Zoom platform uh, this past week. Right? They uh, they had. Uh, what's happened sporadically at different places around the country, but you basically have people trolling the meeting and I, I, mm-hmm. I became a little bit, I don't know how disruptive it was at the time, but it certainly created some real uh, stress. Yeah. Out that, right. Well, that's also really kind of hard to tell what the reaction was because everything is remote. Um, that's true. But yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I live with a composer. He has a musical performance and he doesn't hear the applause. So he doesn't know if anyone liked it. Um, um, the inauguration of the new members of the town board. Um, yeah. they, it was via Zoom, and somebody got in the chat and started saying a lot of really ugly, racist things. We had uh, it was it was going to be a historic occasion. The first uh, African American board member was being sworn in, um, and it was in the chat function. So unless you were looking at the chat function, function you might not have seen it. Um, but uh, it, you know, these are these are things that, um, you know, you want to have the public participate. I don't know that they necessarily needed to be a chat function to watch an inauguration. In hindsight, they could have disabled that. Yeah, that's um, yeah, and, and that's happening at different meetings. And it seems like it could have been something. Joe, well, move your mic. Lost <laughs> your mic. Move your mic around. Um, I, I don't have anything to move around. You're, okay. You're back. Okay. Okay. Um, sorry, sorry, Delaney. Um, lost my train of thought. Um, you were going to say this was happening earlier yeah. on. This is a phenomenon that's happened uh, around the country, and I have a feeling it very possibly could have been someone from the other side of the country who just came into football, knowing you know there, there are organizations out there that do. But Bill, I, I don't want to focus on the negative. The, the Virtual meetings have had some real positives too. We've learned that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think. I mean, early, especially early on in, in in the pandemic, when when people were were home and maybe not working or whatever, you had you had um, you know great attendance at, at these meetings. You had a super large number of people coming to these meetings virtually and all that. And um, I don't know if those numbers are still that high. Um, I know that a lot of a lot of municipalities went back to to the live meetings um, and and are, are maybe now back to the, the virtual meetings again. Um, I think technology is always you know always an issue and um, and and I think you know I, I, some of the some of these smaller municipalities I know, I know like um, so North Haven Village right now is um, in the process of. Up, upgrading and updating um, their AV hardware um, and stuff in their meetings so that they can have these quasi, they can have, you know, half virtual, half live meetings. I, I think, you know, that's that's where you're going to see the solution is when you can, you can do both and you can have, you know, kind of a live meeting, but also a virtual component. Um, like Denise said, you have to have um, the ability to bring people in and and not only monitor these meetings, but be able to participate in these meetings and to address their elected officials. You you know it, whether it's virtual or or live, you have to be able to face to face address your elected officials and and air your grievances and and state your case and support or object to you know to to things that they're doing. I think it's a great thing. I, I think that you know you're 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 talking you're in some cases about boards 
Um, you know, we've said this a, a few times, school boards where three or four people would show up and now you've got, you know, 50, come, 50 people come in into a virtual meeting, planning boards where you had nobody attending and, and you know, and all that. So as these governments, I think, continue, it's been a couple of years, but as they continue to to work this out, hopefully there's, um, you know, there's there's that hybrid approach um, that they can all adopt that um, um, that will be the best of both word, worlds and, and allow people who have, you know, um, parents who have kids and can't leave them home so they can't go to a meeting or parents who, you know, who work, um, you know, and can't go to a Tuesday meeting at one o'clock, which I never understood why, why boards had meetings at Tuesday at one o'clock, but, yeah. but they do. Um, so, so you have, you know, you have better opportunities for people um, to see what their government is doing and to participate in their government, um, you know, through this virtual format. But there are issues with it, as Denise points out. It, it's it's got to get better. It's on headlines on WLIWFM. Uh, so there are going to, I'll tell you another topic that's going to be at the top of the agenda for everybody this year is affordable housing. Well, I think in Riverhead, there's a, a very strong feeling, and I think, uh, you know, it's justified that, there is already, you know, a significant amount of affordable housing here, more than anywhere else on, in any of the other East End towns. Um, I mean, there's more rental affordable housing than, um, you know, home purchase affordable housing, but uh, there is more affordable housing and they are continuing to plan for additional uh, rental affordables in, in the town. So I don't think that's a slam dunk here at all. They haven't really had too much discussion about it publicly, but um, I, I would be, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure where that's going here. Yeah. Well, just to quickly piggyback on, on Denise's comments, I mean, R Riverhead School is too small for those kids who are in it now, they, they, they're bursting at the seams. And, and there's a, a huge debate in the town about how it can even handle having more kids and, and to, to more kids are often tied in more in people's minds. With, oh, if there's affordable housing, there'll be more kids. Um, and that's just going to continue to be an issue in Riverhead. In the other towns, I mean, I think one of the big things that is really difficult to explain to people is the real estate transfer tax for the lower price sales is not necessarily going up. And it's a very complicated formula that doesn't fit into a soundbite. Um, and I don't know how you get that across to people. Like you, you will be paying less under, under this new framework than you would be paying into the community preservation fund. Now, if you were buying a property that's, that's is it below, it's, it's below a certain threshold. It's different in every town. Um, yeah, so the, the, each of the towns is going to have to put together a housing plan for how they want to spend this money, it, assuming that the funds are created and they're able to spend the money. And that's something that they're going to need community volunteers. They're going to need people from certain industries to, to get on board with. And I haven't seen much action other than maybe on Shelter Island with, with um, towns talking about how they're going to form these groups that are going to make the plans for how the money is spent. And, and you know, they're going to be doing that this year ahead of the referendum. So it's going to have to dominate conversations. We haven't heard a lot of conversation from the towns about they have to have these plans put together that are going to either be accepted or rejected by voters. And, and we haven't seen a lot of work done on those yeah. plans yet. Well, I, I think the key there is we haven't seen a lot of work done, but I think that everybody's been optimistic for the last few years that this was going to be passed. And, and I would imagine that behind the scenes, there's been a lot of work done and you'll see um, you'll see them pop out, uh, pop up with with a plan fairly soon so that it can be um, debated a little bit and, and tweaked and all that. But um, I, I would imagine in both on the South Shore anyway, on, on in Southampton and East Hampton, I'm sure officials are, you know, very excited about this and and have been discussing ways to uh, to implement uh, this and, and spend the money for um, for for months and years. Um, so I, I I don't I don't I'm not as alarmed about that. I, I think it'll it'll be forthcoming. You'll see what you know. You'll see what'll happen. Um, I, I think that you know. 
I, I don't think anybody's going to get caught unawares on this. I think that, that the towns will certainly have have things in place. Everybody's everybody's very excited. Um, you know, all the all the, the elected officials from from both towns um, are super excited about it. Are, are both focusing on on affordable housing. East Hampton Town Board this this week, um, you know, Supervisor Peter Van Squake uh, said that that housing is going to be the town's number one priority um, this year moving forward. So I'm certain that that they're going to be looking at at this um, new source of revenue uh, closely and, and how to be able to implement that into their plans. So also in 2022, cannabis is on the, the agenda and we're going to probably very quickly start to see some at least ideas about how the state will go. I mean, Cannabis is legal in New York State right now to possess and be setting up the framework to allow for an economy of buying and selling cannabis. And that's going to get complicated. Yeah, I know Southampton Town Board is poised um, this this week on Tuesday to start talking about, I think, locations. I, I think for now, they're just looking at um, medical marijuana dispensaries and where they want to put those. But I, I think the discussions... After that, are certainly going to be about where recreational pot facilities um, will be. I know Riverhead has been has been talking about that for uh, for a couple months now. Riverhead and Southampton Town are both um, have both have both not opted out. <laughs> if, if that's they didn't <laughs> opt in, you don't need to opt in. Neither has opted out of, of uh, recreational marijuana sales and, and dispensaries and lounges. Um, so yeah, the, the big question is where do you put those? Do you do you allow them in, in certain zoning districts? Do you allow them? Um, you know, they obviously have to be you know away from churches and schools and and other facilities. Do you push them to the to the back to the other side of the tracks, or do you make them part of mainstream? I think will will certainly be the question. I think when looking at that too, you've also got to wonder how many licenses are going to be distributed. Um, on on the east end, and you know, I mean, you're going to have this large discussion about where to put these facilities. And if you're talking about, you know, two or three per town, I think it becomes less important. But yeah. that's me. That's that's the number I've heard. Denise, too. I feel like Riverhead is really well positioned to sort of dominate this industry in in locally uh, because they have the medical marijuana facility. Yeah, I mean, that's been open for a number of years already um, and uh, has operated without incident. Um, it's, um, you know, the, the, the company that operates that is a big player in the industry, and they bought a large greenhouse facility on Sound Avenue in Riverhead uh, last year. It uh, dropped like $42 million on, on that purchase, I think. And, um, you know, they... Um, they are very interested in getting into the recreational end of the business here in town. They've expressed that. Um, Riverhead Town has formed a um, cannabis committee, and uh, they, um, you know, they had one meeting so far, and they've discussed uh, drawing up a map of sorts uh, to depict where all of the various facilities where. These, um, you know, cafes and retail shops should not be near, like, all, you know, all, like they're all across the town, all the daycare centers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then they are also talking about limiting it to potentially just the industrial uh, zone or an industrial zone in the town. Um, so we'll be I think we'll be seeing where that goes, you know, relatively soon. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think that. Riverhead's well positioned as, you know, a, a location that's between both forks and, um, you know, certainly accessible to people as they're, you know, coming through either heading east or west. Um, that's been Riverhead's uh, kind of a blessing and a curse, too, I guess. <laughs> well, half of Forever. the North Fork is in Riverhead Town, so yeah, a lot of people don't realize. And Bill Kinnecock Nation filed... Uh, with the state to apply for one of the casino licenses uh, that the state is going to be awarding. So that's something we're going to have to keep an eye on in the coming year as well. That That's at least a project that may be rolling. Mm -hmm. uh, soon we may see uh, some activity this year. 
Well, and they'll have all the, the marijuana money to spend to build the casino. So <laughs> the tribes, uh, various economic development pursuits are all starting to at least get into the starting gate. We, we may start to see some things coming from all of that. So, yeah, great, great for that. And we haven't even talked about climate change. Uh, or we kelp farming. Kelp farming. We for <laughs> traffic. Maybe somebody will come up with a brilliant solution for traffic issues. Uh, Let's hope it's a it's a newsworthy uh, 2022, but in a good way. Is uh, in a good way, yeah, please. Productive. Uh, I think we're ready for some positive news on the East End, no question. So that's it for uh, our first edition of 2022 for Behind the Headlines. Thank you to Beth Young of East End Beacon and to Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. Thank you guys, as always, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Bill Sutton, thank you uh, for being my co-host today and uh, for, uh, you know, all you do for us in, in 2021 and 2022 <laughs> going forward at the Express News Group. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It was a really great show. We want, we wish all of our listeners out there a happy new year, and uh, we will be back with you next week. I'm Joe Shaw. Thanks for joining us. Bye.